If you go on YouTube right now and type in the word Mafia, you're either going to come up with the first or the second one, no matter what part of the world you're in. My sit down with Michael Francis, it's over 3.5 million views. It became a phenomenon after we did the sit down because of how detailed he told the stories. A lot of people said, this man reminds me of Michael Corleone from the movie Godfather. You'll know why once you listen to this podcast. Michael, I have to tell you, you're, you're one of the most fascinating people that I've been looking forward to sitting down with. And you had Nikki Eyes. What's up, guy? And Mikey Francesi. When you hear about the modern day, not even a modern day, you know the movie Godfather, everybody has the poster and you, you watch the movie and you hear about Michael Corleone and you think, is there really a character like that? You pretty much are the real life Michael Corleone per se of that story, right? So it's exciting to be sitting out with you. Appreciate you for uh, uh, making the time and welcoming us to your place here. Well, thank you. Yeah, and I have been compared, obviously, to, uh, to Michael. Uh, I think it's a good comparison at times because uh, Al Pacino, uh, he played a terrific role in that movie. Yeah, and there is a certain flow that I watch in the movie with him and I see with you where the mannerisms, it's amazing how close that is uh, with the mannerisms that you have on the way you speak. So let's get right into it. Uh, if you don't know Michael Franzisi, let me give you some stats. Here's the best way to uh, open it up so you'll know who we're sitting down with. So in 1986, uh, Fortune Magazine, November 10th, Fortune Magazine does an article saying the 50 biggest mafia bosses, right? And, <laughs> and when you go through this, the part in here that's fascinating to me is the following. They have you down on 18th place, right? And then they had John Gotti at 13. So you look at this and you say, well, you're 18, Gotti is 13, and then you have Anthony Salerno at first, and you have some of these other names, Persico, Carmine Persico, who you work with very closely for many years, Salvatore Santora, some of these names that people know about. The part that I looked at, Michael, there's not a single person on this list where their age starts with the number three except for you. Gotti was 46, you were 35, so we're not just talking about somebody who made it to the high level of the Colombo family, the five families, the Colombo family yourself. You did it at 35 years old. How was it being raised into that environment and that family? I would say I had a good role model as far as, um, you know, my dad being a, a real person of substance in that life. And, uh, you know, I love my father. He was, uh, he was everything to me growing up. And, um, you know, he was an important figure there. And it's not that I tried to emulate him, uh, Patrick, because I never thought I would be part of that life growing up. You know, I had different thoughts. I was gonna, you know, I was an athlete. I was going to school. I was gonna be a doctor. Uh, but once I made the decision to get into that life, I had, as far as I was concerned, the best guy in the world to, to model myself after, and that was my dad. I learned a lot from him directly watching all the things that was taking place. Yeah, just the way he carried himself, you know, the way people respected him, the respect that he had for my mother and, and my sisters, and just the way he carried himself, you know. And uh, he was a man's man. And, you know, from the time I was five years old, my father drummed it into my head, you know, Michael, you have to be a man's man. That's mm -hmm. the standard in life you have to live up to. He, in many ways, formed the person that, uh, that I became later on in life. He had so much street credit that you can tell if somebody did something to you and they knew who your dad was, there was a line, like you couldn't mess with it. How was it being raised in that environment? Well, it was different, you know, I, I always tell the story. Uh, I was an athlete and uh, baseball was really my sport and uh, my dad would never miss a game no matter what he was doing, mob business, legit business, I'd be playing ball, he'd show up. He'd always come to the field late and he'd pull up in a big black Cadillac or a black Lincoln. He'd get out of the car, dressed sharp in a suit and he'd always have five or six guys with him because he never traveled alone. And I'd be up to bat and they'd walk out on the field and the umpire would take one look at him and never call strike three on me. So, I mean, it had his advantages, you know, being uh, Sonny Francis's son. You know, he, uh, he was just a great father, you know, and obviously I knew there was something different about him, but my dad never spoke about it in the house. Really? Never. So you didn't really know fully what was taking place? Never from him. 
I knew because he was such a high profile figure that we lived in an environment where law enforcement was around us all the time. And he was under surveillance from five or six different agencies, from the feds right down to all the state and locals. So they would park cars around our house and follow us wherever we went. And you know, I viewed them at that time as the enemy because I viewed my dad as my hero. And so I knew who he was. I obviously read the papers. He had a lot of press. Um, and I, I observed things, but never from his mouth. He would never bring it into the house. For, in the house, we were just a family. That didn't exist. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. There are six areas I'd like to touch up on here with you. One is story on how that life was too how the game, because you wrote a book, I'll make you an offer you cannot refuse, the game between what you had to experience and how similar that is on the corporate side. I think there's a lot to be learned from the entrepreneurs who uh, watch this. How, do I, how to identify a conciliary? I really want to stay on that because what it means to be a conciliary, how do you identify that? It's a very uh, fascinating way you talk about it in the book. Human nature, you know, how do you read the, through the BS and how do you read through some people that are trying to take advantage of you, what are some of the things that you saw. Uh, and then some side questions about characters and then some fun questions at the end that we'll go through. So why don't we get into it as far as when you knew and you said, I want to get in, how did you get into the whole, you know, family, I want to become a made man? How did that whole experience take place with you? You know, Patrick, I never aspired to be a, a, a made man. You know, I, uh, I was on a different path in life, but uh, I was 17 years old when my dad drew a 50-year prison sentence and uh, went off to serve his federal time. And I sat with my dad, I visited him in uh, the federal jail before they shipped him off to the penitentiary. And he said to me, Michael, I'm innocent. I didn't commit this crime. He was alleged to have masterminded a nationwide string of bank robbers. He said, I never knew the witnesses. I'm not a bank robber. The witnesses were all drug addicts, junkies. And one thing I knew, my dad hated anything to do with drugs. My whole life he preached against her. He would make up stories about drug addicts to scare me never to take drugs. So I knew he would never bother with people like this. So I believed him. And when he went away, Joe Colombo, the boss of our family, who we were close with, he kind of took me under his wing because my dad was his underboss. And I started to meet a lot more of my dad's friends, you know, and they were influencing me. Mike, you know, what are you doing going to school? I was a pre-med student at, at that time, wow. uh, shortly after that. You know, if you don't help your father out, he's going to die in prison. So I went to see him in Leavenworth and I said, Dad, I'm not going to school. You're going to die in here if I don't help you. He didn't want that. I mean, he kind of argued, no, I want you to go to school, get an education. I said, Dad, it's too late. My mind is made up. And he said to me, he said, if you're going to be on the street, then I want you on the street the right way. In his mind, the right way was to become a member of his life. And he proposed me at that point uh, for membership into the life. And you know the interesting thing, Pat? My, my father, even at that point, never told me what the life was about. Because, you know, you're not supposed to talk about that life with anybody outside of it. And he wouldn't violate that policy, even with me as own son. My dad's a good soldier. He just said, go home, somebody will be in touch with you, do whatever you're told. It was kind of on-the-job training. And uh, two weeks later, I sat with the boss, and, uh, you know, he ran things down for me and uh, told me what to expect. And for the next year and a half, I was kind of a recruit, where I kind of learned the life, how to do anything I was told to do to prove myself worthy. And then uh, Halloween night, 1975, is when uh, I was formally inducted into that life. You remember it vividly? Vividly, yeah. And how was, what was that process like? Was there a ritual? Was there an experience you had to go through? Very, very solemn ceremony, very serious. Uh, six of us walked into a room individually towards midnight that night. It was a very secure setting, obviously. I walked into a room, the boss was seated at the head of like a horseshoe configuration, the underboss and the consigliere to his left and right, and all of our couple regimes are captains alongside of them. And uh, I walked down the aisle, stood in front of the boss, I held out my hand, he took a knife right here, cut my finger, some blood dropped on the floor, this is a blood oath. I cupped my hands, he took a picture of a saint, Catholic altar card, put it on my hands and lit it aflame. It didn't hurt, it, it burned quickly, it was just symbolic. And he said, tonight, Michael Francis, you are born again into a new life, into La Cosa Nostra, this thing of ours. Violate what you know about this life, betray your brothers, and you will die and burn in hell like the saint is burning in your hands. Do you accept? Yes, I do. And that's it. That's the ritual. That's uh, it's wow. short and sweet, but extremely serious. Now, there were six of you. That, that six of us. We went in individually. You take it alone. Got it. And then out of these six, apparently you're the only one that's alive. They're all dead. They're all dead. 
Not one of them died of natural causes. Every one of them were murdered. Wow. So why are you still here? You know, because if you if you read the story and you 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 put yourself out there, and it's not like you went and you ratted people out or you became an informant. There's nothing there that people will say. Even some of the guys that were upset that you stepped away, they don't call you informant. They just say, you know, it's impressive to see that he was able to make it, and we're proud of him. Even some of your enemies are saying good things about you. What, how did, how was that process for you? Never hear somebody survive when they leave the family. How did that happen with you? Well, you know, Patrick, I don't want, I, I didn't have any grand plan because there's no blueprint to walk away from that life, not enter a program and survive. And, you know, I'm only saying this because it's a fact. I don't know of anybody else that has done that successfully, especially at the level that I reached, because I was at a pretty high level. You know, I didn't know how it was going to work out. I knew that when I walked away, um, people were going to be very upset. You don't walk away from that life. You're not allowed to renounce it. And I had a lot of trouble as a result. But, you know, uh, for me, there's two sides of this. There's a spiritual side, obviously. I'm a person of faith. And the bottom line for me is I believe God had a different plan and a purpose for my life. And over the past 20 years, um, I've seen more evidence of that, and, and I'm very secure with that. It's God's plan. But aside from that, you know, I realized that God never throws you into the fire without preparing you first. So I spent 20 years in that life at a very high level, and I was a good student of the life. I, I observed and I watched, and I, I reached a certain level there. So I knew I had to make changes. You know, one of the horrors about that life, and I don't know if you know this, but you might be in trouble, in serious trouble, your best friend walks you into a room, you don't walk out again. And unfortunately, I've experienced that in my life with other people. And so I said, okay, um, they're not gonna walk me into a room. They're gonna have to work to get me. I move out of New York. I would have never made it in New York. Uh, I move way out across the country to California. It's one thing to try to walk somebody into a room. It's another thing to send a hit squad uh, to try to get somebody who knows what's going on. And uh, I never put a house in my name, no utilities. I, uh, I never went to any nightclubs, bad place for me. I know who hangs out there. Somebody sees me, they make a call to New York, they want to be a hero. I walk in the parking lot, boom, I'm gone. Mm. I stopped creating patterns in my life. I never went to the same restaurant every Tuesday night. I never walked my dog every morning at seven o'clock. So if somebody was scoping me, they had, a, they had a tough time in figuring out where I was. And I was very disciplined in that, very disciplined, because I never sell my former associates short. There was very capable guys there. And then what happened, um, I just outlasted everybody. I mean, who went to jail, who got killed? We had a big war in our family in the early 90s. About 13 guys got killed. Another 20 or something went to jail for life. And I just outlasted everybody. And you know, the, the major thing for me was that I, I never testified against anybody. I didn't send anybody to prison. I didn't put anybody in trouble. Had I done that, it would have been a lot worse. It would have been a lot worse because some people had personal feelings against me. Because when I left, you know, look, I was making a lot of money. A lot of people were earning with me. And when you shut that off, people get upset and they resented that, you know, especially my boss at the time. But the fact that I didn't hurt anybody over a period of time, that really went in my favor. And um, listen, you know, there's no guarantees. Um, you know, I'm still careful when I go to certain places. Still till today. Oh, yeah. Really? So the level of paranoia is not gone? It's not paranoia. And, I, you know, it's not a macho thing. I don't want you to think that, but I just feel very secure. But, you know, look, God doesn't tell you to be stupid. I can't go back to Brooklyn and say, hey guys, I'm moving back into the Got neighborhood. It, of you know, it'd be like thumbing my nose in yep. their face. So I don't do that. But you know, listen, I'm a speaker. I'm out in front of thousands of people every week. I've signed books for hundreds of people. I don't know who's on that book line. You know, you never know. You know, I'm not a kid anymore. You know, God has blessed me with, uh, with good things in my life. And um, I think I'll be around for a while longer. But if not, I mean, what could you do? I mean, that's, that's how I look at things. It, it seems, Michael, that you're very resolved. I mean, when, I, when, when speaking to you, there's none of it that you're uncomfortable, which is fascinating. But talking about numbers, I, I don't know if everybody really knows what kind of numbers you were bringing in. The numbers I read about, you were making six to eight mil a week, six to eight million per week, and you were selling a half a billion dollars of gas per month. And they said you are the highest money maker mafia boss outside of Al Capone. I mean, there's a lot of people that are making money with you. How did that happen? People think that mob guys sit around in their social clubs and we start to target different businesses. Well, we're gonna take that over, we're gonna do this. Normally it doesn't happen that way. 
What happens is people come to us. People would come to me with all sorts of deals. And it was mostly guys that came inside their company that had a way to make some money and they figured they can do it with me, I can protect them, I can finance them, we have strength, you know, all that. And that's how this happened in the gas business. Some guy came to me at a very small uh, gasoline operation and he said, you know, I have a way to defraud the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. It was attractive to me because at that time I didn't like the government. And, you know, my, my targets back then were always bigger companies. I didn't go after small stuff. <laughs> the list of companies I see, I'm like, you didn't yeah. go after small. No, I didn't go after small. I figured the ones that can afford it, no problem. <laughs> um, and the government was a huge company. So uh, what happened, he had a couple of other wise guys that were kind of trying to extort him in his business. And um, I was able to solve that for him. And then we went into business together, and I'll tell you how it happened. I, I put somebody with him, because I didn't know him that well, and I said, I'm going to put this fellow with you. We're going to see exactly what you got going on, and we'll try to figure this out. Well, the guy I put with him was a butcher. He was my butcher. Big guy, had a scar across the top of his head. Big Vinny, we called him. So he's coming to my, every Saturday, he would bring uh, meat to my house, right? So this Saturday, he pulls up, and he's got this big box on his shoulder. And I said, what are you doing with all that meat? Are we having a party or something? I don't know about it. He says, hey, chief, it ain't meat. I said, what is it? He said, come on in the kitchen. We go in the kitchen. He puts the box down. He opens it up, $280,000. He said, that's the first week's take in the gas business. And long story short, uh, he really got my attention at that point. I grew that 280 into, uh, at times, almost $8 million a week. Bring it Per in. week? Per week, yeah. And basically, uh, you know, devised a scheme um, built upon what that little germ of an idea that he had. And uh, we were defrauding the government out of tax on every gallon of gasoline. It was 20 to 40 cents, depending where you were located. The government couldn't figure it out. We had a very efficient scheme put together, and they just couldn't figure it out. We were always one step ahead of them. And is this part of the whole RICO story, which was, you know, kind of linked to that where corporation after corporation after corporation and then the last one he would file a bankruptcy and this this was figured out on how to avoid paying the taxes which allowed you to kind of compete against your marketplace so you had guys that were buying a million gallons all of a sudden they're buying two three then they're doing 10 million gallons from you and you're one of the biggest vendors to them Patrick, we would... Uh, and you're not even Middle Eastern or from Texas. You know, you're Italian doing this. I had probably 300 gas stations. We had branded and unbranded stations. And what we would do is, let's say it was a mobile station. I'm just picking that out because we dealt with all sure. of them. And we go to a station and say, how much are you paying for a gallon of gas? They say, oh, I'm paying a dollar. How would you like to pay 95 cents? Now, five cents is a big saving for them. I said, great. I said, I'll tell you what you do. How many, gallon, how many loads a week are you getting from mobile? Oh, we're getting six. All right. Buy three from them, buy three from us. We'll deliver in the middle of the night, we'll save you that. By the end of the day, they wanted to deliver, they wanted us to service them all. They didn't want to buy anything from Mobile anymore. I said, you can't do that, you gotta keep your brand. Nobody can compete with us. And if we bought a couple of gas stations, like I remember one incident, uh, there were four gas stations on a corner, big ones. Mm -hmm. We bought one of them, and I went to the other three and I said, now here's the deal. I said, I'm gonna be the lowest guy on the corner. I said, if you sell for 95, I'm going to sell for 92. If you sell for 92, I'm going to go down to 80 until I put you all out of business. So let's keep it at a certain level and we don't have to compete. You told them that. So there was a regulated number that we're doing with, so no one's... I said, if you guys stay at this number, you'll be fine. If you try to compete with me, I'm going to knock you out because you can't compete with me. And pretty soon they were all buying from me anyway. There'll never be anything like that again. I don't know if I read this or I, I, I saw you talk about it where one of the guys you did business with was this the oil guy who for eight years tracked everything that you were doing, who was actually the guy that ended up becoming the informant that gave the information out that, you know, stopped the entire operation? Yeah, he was my partner. Uh, he's passed away now. We never had an ill word in seven years that we were together. My kids called him Uncle Larry. His kids called me Uncle Michael. But the whole time I was his meal ticket because he knew if he ever got in trouble that I was a guy that they would want. So he kept a, a, a diary on me. He testified against me in one case, a big case where Rudy Giuliani indicted me, and I was acquitted. So the jury still didn't believe him. You're making all the family's money now. They're all kind of happy about you, but at the same time, you know, you're there as well. What happened when all of a sudden you were growing a little too fast? What kind of threats did you start seeing at that point? Were there some people that were power people saying, wait a minute, I don't like this guy having this much power? Yeah, you know what happened? I had a couple of things against me. Number one, I was a younger guy. 
And the older guys tend to resent you. You know, you're young, you're doing all this, you're making all this money. And that comes with the territory, you can't help that. You try to deal with it as best you can, you know, you're not flaming that fire, so to speak, but it happens. And then, uh, you know, I had teamed up with the Russians. I had all the Russian mob guys in Brighton Beach, Brooklyn, uh, were all my partners, and they were a pretty big crew. And I think it was Newsday, a publication out in Long Island had written a story that I was becoming so powerful I was gonna break away from the Columbos and start my own family. No truth to it whatsoever. It was like a fairy tale, fiction, made up. But it got into people's heads. And you know, my boss started to question some of the mm, Russian guys. You know, some things started to happen like that. And I knew it, so I was on my guard about it. You know, my father and I discussed it. My dad was always in and out of jail on parole. Mm. So when he was out, we talked about these things. Um, uh, but I knew I had to watch myself, you know. It's, it's, it comes with the territory. Uh, what was the one event that happened where you're kind of like, listen, I gotta start taking a look at what's going on with me. Was it Joey Colombo's story? Was it the Castellano, what Gotti did to him? Or what was it where you're like, listen, I'm gonna start paying a little bit more attention on what's going on in the marketplace right now. You know, it wasn't that. It was, it was an incident that I had personally with my boss when they, uh, they basically walked me into that room and uh, really put me on the hot seat. Because there was a story that said that uh, I, w I had stole $2 billion from the government and I'm handing the family $2 million a week. So, I mean, I got questioned, you know, they were saying $2 billion, Michael. I said, hey, my answer was, when they write about everybody else, it's a lie. When they're writing about me, all of a sudden it's the truth. I said, come on, man, I'm giving you guys all this money. You don't have to do anything. I'm taking care of everything, you know. I put nobody in trouble. Nobody's on the line here. If anybody goes down, it's gonna be me and my crew. I said, well, what's going on here, you know? So I got a little upset about it. And then um, I was talking to the boss and you don't lose your head with the boss, but I got a little angry. And then I had to, I had to tone myself down a little bit, you know? And, and uh, but that put me on the alert. It, uh, I said, you know, I got to really watch myself here because, um, you know, mistakes here you pay dearly for in life. And uh, it kind of just, like I said, put me really on my guard. Yeah, I'll be honest with you, I thought I was, I, I thought I might've gotten killed that night. You know, the, the setup was bad. My best friend was walking me into a room. It was a, it was a room in Brooklyn. I, I'll be honest with you, you know, I had to walk out of the car and into that house and base, uh, that basement apartment. It was probably a 30 yard walk. That was either the longest or the shortest walk of my wow. life. Wow. Yeah, I mean, I, I, as I speak now, I can hear the crickets chirping and I can remember the smell of the flowers. Unbelievable. Yeah, because you know, Patrick, I learned something. When you think you're going to meet your maker, and I wasn't a religious guy at that point, you start to pray. And I was, uh, I was nervous. I tried not to show it because I said, hey, if this is it, this is it. You kind of get conditioned in that yeah. life. But uh, yeah, that was the night. And um, I didn't appreciate it. Years later now, because you, you hear stories that your father was involved and he wasn't involved. How do you feel about that whole situation where was your dad really kind of saying, let's find out if Michael is really making this money and I'm not, you know, we're not getting a piece of it. How did you respond to that at that time? I think my dad kind of threw me under the bus a little bit that night. He, uh, you know, he went in separately and I was told that he didn't defend me. He just kind of backed off and said, hey, if my son is stealing, he does everything. I don't do anything. I was, I'm on parole. He handles everything. And, were you guys uh, on bad terms at that time? No, or? we were on great terms. Wow. And uh, it really hurt, you know, because I said, man, it, it, it kind of gave me really pause because I said, you know, if this life can separate father and son, what do we really have mm. here? I never said anything to him because, you know, again, in that life, you learn to keep things quiet until you're the right time. And uh, but it really put me on notice that I got to really be careful. I was very disappointed in him. I didn't it didn't change my love for him or anything, but I was extremely, I was really disappointed. It really hurt. How do you, from a moment like that, that's, that's a big scar. This is a man that grew up, you need to be a man's man from five years old. You know, he's shaping you into who you are and he's coming to your games, he's always at your game. How do you, from that moment, trust anybody else and not believe that, you know, at some moment somebody could turn on me? Is that the faith part that completely changed it, that brought the peace? It did, you know, I understand my father. I know he's really a product of that life. And I kind of understood, even though I didn't appreciate it. I knew my dad still loved me. It wasn't anything like that. It's very hard to explain to anybody else. Like even my wife has a real problem with this. She says, you know, you know, how do you forgive that? I used to tell her, you know, don't worry about it. It's okay. And, you know, we have this special bond between us and I understand the life, I'm a mm, product of sure. it too. But it was still disappointing because I, I would have never done that to him. But I'll tell you what, I, I almost thank him for it now 
Because I'll tell you this, Patrick, I met my wife two years after that. And that's when I made the decision to walk away from that life. But if this incident didn't happen with my dad, I don't think I would have ever walked away. Wow. I think that was God's way of separating me from this bond or this hold that my dad had on me. Um, so I looked back and I said, actually, it was a good thing because um, I don't think I would have walked away. It's amazing how you process it that way. Um, I mean, I don't know who um, can sit there and go through that and not think of it a different way, but the way you're processing is the man that did this to give your life maybe a second chance type of a situation. Very interesting. So, and now he's 100 years old. You know, you were telling me, you know, he had a surgery recently. He's uh, doing good. He's still sharp. He thinks he's going to live a long time, which is great. He still talks to me like I'm part of that life. I mean, he's, <laughs> he's unbelievable. Is he still but, reminiscing and telling old stories that you remember Michael? Or? Yes. You know, I always say this. Look, my dad did a lot of rough things in his life. So did I. I went to jail for a crime that I was guilty of. But, you know, that particular crime that he did 38 years in prison for, he was innocent of. And I'll take that to my grave. Really? Oh, 100%. I investigated that case spoke to every witness, they recanted their testimony, we gave them lie detector tests, proved they lied at the trial. The FBI was complicit in turning them against my dad. It was a bad case, he was framed, a thousand percent. People say, well, you know, he got away with so much. Mm -hmm. That's not how our system's supposed to work. They have enough tools and weapons, the government, to get people the right way. They're not supposed to do that, no matter what or who you are. Because if they do it against the bad guys, one day they can do it against the good guys if it suits them. So I always say, tell people, look, you wouldn't want my dad's life in the last 50 years. That man suffered. He did 38 years in prison. My sister died of an overdose of drugs while he was away. My brother was a drug addict. My brother actually turned against my father, went into the witness protection program and testified against him and got him thrown back in jail. My kid wow. brother. I mean, my father was destroyed over that. Wow. You know, my mom passed away in, in the last years before she passed away. I can only describe their relationship as ugly because she blamed him for everything. You know, 33 years without a husband, she blamed him for everything that went down. So, I mean, the guy suffered tremendously. And I have a real heart for that. You know, I love my dad and uh, we patched things up, you know. It's amazing how, you know, people said I'd never have a relationship with him again, that, you know, when I walked away. And God has brought it full circle. Mm. And I found out one thing, Patrick. You have to give children, or children want to love their parents. You've got to give them a real reason not to love their parents. Powerful. Absolutely. I'm just thankful that we have this relationship again. So Sparks restaurants, famous for, you know, Paul Castellano is where he got shot outside by uh, John Gotti and that whole relationship. How was Paul Castellano? Was he really just a money business guy? I knew Paul. I didn't know him well because he was a boss. I was young at that time, uh, but I was in his company quite a bit and I did have an incident with him. And quite honestly, you know, the word on him on the street was not great. I don't think he had a lot of real friends on the street, especially in the other families. I know in our family, they didn't talk well about him. More of a business guy, you know, that kind of a thing. I, I think people think that maybe he didn't earn the position that he had because he was so close to Carlo and Carlo gave him that spot. You know, it went down with Gotti. I mean, it was, it was either him or Gotti at that point. And, and John made the move. And, you know, in our life, um, there's no election process. You know, if you're going to take over, you're going to take over the hard way. You don't rival a boss and look for votes. You rival a boss by eliminating him. You know, look, money is always at the root of just about everything there. You know, if you're good, you make people earn, people like you. That's the bottom line, you know, and if they don't like you, they'll tolerate you because you're earning with them. But he was kind of known to be a greedy guy and he didn't fit the, the profile of the real mob boss in a way, you know. Gotti doesn't make that move on his own. He kind of solicits people, hey, what do you think? He tries to get some uh, support that if this were to happen, you know, how are people going to react? So he kind of knew how it was going to work out if he took him out. Every time you had a running with him, you've had obviously many runnings with him, you've done a couple sit-downs with him. How was Gotti like, personality-wise? Why did he have this, you know, larger-than-life story, and nowhere near the kind of money you brought him? What made him that special? Well, you know, he was, he fit the Hollywood profile, so to speak. I mean, he had the look, he had the mannerisms. You know, one thing I will say about John, I happen to like him. You know, socially, a lot of fun. We would go in a club, I mean, a lot of fun. I mean, he was a good guy to be around. Business, he didn't really understand business. 
And, uh, and it was a nightmare dealing with him in that respect because the one thing about Gotti, in his mind, he always had to come out on top. He could never be a loser, never. So it was very hard to negotiate and, and do anything. You had to make him think that he won, even if you were winning. It was the only way to get around mm. and get something out of him. So you had to kind of have that mentality going in with him. But it was very difficult to deal with in that regard. I respected him because he made no bones about who he was. Yeah, I'm a gangster, I'm a mobster, I love this thing, that's all I am and that's all I ever want to be. And it was public about yeah, it. Yeah, it was public about it, and that was it. You know, people say he destroyed the life. He didn't destroy the life, you know I mean? We all destroyed the life, you know? The government just one-upped us with their technology, with the laws, with the informants they had. I remember reading this uh, where you said, when you went to prison, they didn't bother you. When he went to prison, he got bullied in prison. My father taught me something. He said, Mike, when you go into prison, remember three things, three words that are gonna take you, make you have an easy go of it with other guys. Remember to say, please, thank you, and excuse me. You know, because you bunk into somebody, excuse me. You know, you ask somebody, please, may I have this? You don't cut in front of people on the line. Because everybody that, so many guys rather, I should say, that got no respect on the street want to get all the respect in there because they're putting on a show for mm. everybody else. So little silly things become major things. In Got there. it. So you can't throw your weight around. Now you can't take any nonsense, but you know, people have to understand you may be the silent type, but don't mess with me and I'm not going to disrespect you. Don't disrespect me. And John carried himself differently, paid the price. And I know a few guys that did that, that, so. Business, you wrote this book, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. When I read books, you know, I'll leave my mark and write down. I made so many marks in this that was just, and it's, it's a small book. And I, I'm amazed, I will tell you, if you haven't read this book, you have to read this book. It was in 09, which social media wasn't around. I hope we can make this book become a phenomenon because I think every entrepreneur salesperson leader must read this book so make a list of it we'll put a link on the bottom for you to get as well you linked it between business and the mafia life that you went through and you talked a lot of a lot lot of different parts of it, it, it tell me about the sit down which was obviously very big uh in the in the business you were in and sit down to us maybe we go into a boardroom and uh you know we're sitting and negotiating with our investors or you know you know advisory board whatever it is how was sit-down like for you guys? Well, it was, it was the basis uh, or the, the format in which we resolved everything. I mean, anytime we had to resolve a business dispute, something more serious, we did it at a sit-down, that's what we called it. It's funny because my publisher, after they read that chapter, they don't have any more meetings. They have sit-downs <laughs> now, you know, the whole place is a sit-down. These were high-level, um, very sophisticated meetings, believe it or not. And we had certain rules, you know, if you're a made guy and you're at a sit down, you had to be respectful, no matter what the situation was. In other words, if I'm a made guy and I'm arguing something and I'm lying and you know I'm lying, you can't call me a liar. If you call me a liar, you lose the, the argument automatically. You have to figure out a way to make people know that you're wrong, that this guy is wrong and I'm right. And uh, the old time was very tactful at this, you know, they would try to get you into a trap or you would just say something and you're done, it's all over. So you had to really learn how to respectfully get your point across and you had to know the mentality of the personality of the person going in. Well, you don't defeat them. These old timers were smart, you know, they were cagey. I had so many of these because it was like every day in my life when I was in the gas business, I had somebody trying to take over, somebody trying to get in. Because, you know, in New York, there's a lot of us. And we were constantly engaging with one another on different matters. And I had a big crew, so the guys in my crew got in trouble. I had to sit down with other people. It was constant way of business. So you learn how to carry yourself there. And it really helped me in my negotiation skills in business. It really helped because Going in, I would figure out what I wanted, what I would settle for, um, and I would keep, you know, I, I learned one thing. It's always great to let the other person talk. Let them talk, let them just keep talking, throw out a word that gets him a little bit and he'll talk more. And as he's talking, you can kind of figure out his mentality, his personality, what you can get out of him, what you can't get out of him. And um, it helped me a lot in negotiating deals later on. And you know, sometimes you may be the smartest person in the room, and you don't want anybody to know that. You just want to keep quiet like you don't know anything. Let them think they're smarter than you. Mm, interesting. 
And there's other times when uh, you're not the smartest person in the room, but you want people to think you are. So you have to learn how to have that skill. Were you a big reader? Because what you just said is art of war, right? So, you, you know, when you're strong, you know, you got to show uh, that you're weak. When you're weak, you got to act strong. So were you one that's, I mean, obviously, I, you read Machiavelli, Prince, that was kind of the Bible for uh, the family, right? But were you always reading? No, I wasn't a big reader, honestly. I became a reader in prison because I have a lot to do. But no, it's just something I developed, I think, um, along the way. One real talent that helped me, a skill, or two. Number one, I recognized a good deal because I got a lot of stuff thrown at me. And I recognized what was good and what wasn't going to work. And that's important because you can waste your time with stuff all day long. And secondly was, I always say, I knew how to put the right people in the right place and get them and motivated them to do the work properly. My mantra always was at that time, do what you do best and delegate the rest and then make sure they do the job. And that always worked for me until today. You know, there's things that I'm just not good at and I don't even try to do them. I don't even want to be bothered with it, but I'll get somebody that's going to do them so had a, whole a team lot better than you, me. Oh, yeah. yeah, I had to. So who was the best guy you saw at a sit down? Were you, every time you went there and you knew he was going to be at the sit down, you either learned a lot from him or you knew this was not going to be an easy one? Yeah, well, Gotti was tough. I mean, you know, you knew going in, you had to just outsmart him and let him think he won, but you get out of there with what you really? want. Really? Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. You know, I had to deal with him. Long story short, it may sound silly, but it wasn't at the time. We had a big flea market, a swap meet. And uh, there were two partners there. One of them was an accountant, legitimate guy. And um, he was my guy. And there was another guy that he was partners with that was kind of a street guy. And they couldn't get along. And the kid was stealing out of the market, so the guy came to me. So I threw the kid out of the market. I said, you can't come back. You're done. We're taking it over. Well, he runs to John. And John says, uh, he gets in touch with me. He says, Mike, this kid belongs to me and half the market is mine. I said, John, the guy didn't even know who you were. He ran to you, now all of a sudden you know him your whole life, you know? That's what happens in that life. So we have a big sit down and uh, uh, we can't get along. And I said, I told my guy, I said, you're never gonna get along with this guy and I'm never gonna get along with John in this market. I said, so we have to do something. Either we're gonna buy him out or he's gonna buy us out. Mm. So um, I knew at the time that he would never stand for me buying him out. Never. Pride. Yeah, pride. So I had, to, uh, I had to have him buy me out. But if I told him to buy me out, he wouldn't buy me out. So I went in there and we sat down. I said, John, I'm buying you out. And the first words, it's like I knew, you don't buy me out, I buy you out. I said, no, I'm buying you. We went back and forth. Finally, I gave in. I said, all right, buy me out. You know? So he buys me out. You know, we get out, we, we share the money or whatever. Three months later, the market went down. He closed it because I knew what they were going to do. Now, who got the better end of the deal? I don't know because I know what I got. Who knows how much he got when he busted the market out. But it worked out better that way. But, you know, he thought he won. You know, he could tell everybody he got me out of the market. Meanwhile, I got what I wanted. So that's now, how you had to deal with him. Very interesting. Anybody else that was very good in the sit down that was a different approach than him? You know, uh, I sat down with Castellano. Um, he, he was rough. You know, he was more business, but, you know, he's a boss, so he can throw his weight around a little bit more. And you had to be mindful of that, you know, but you had to be respectful and just hold your ground, you know, and but he was good. He was really good. I sat down with fat Tony Salerno, who was the boss of the Genovese family. I liked Tony a lot. You know, I, I really liked him, really respected him. He was very good. The old timers were good. The younger guys, not so much. But, you know, I had an advantage. I mean, I always had my father, uh, you know, early on was my mentor, so he kind of he kind of gave me clues as to how to how to go in and win, and he was good. 35, it's like you were the LeBron James of the era, right? I mean, you were the youngest guy. I mean, it's 11 years is the difference to the second youngest guy, and that's Gotti, and you're doing it at 35, sitting with these powerful guys negotiating. Michael, how was compensation figured out? Okay, 40 cents, I'm bringing a half a billion gallons, six to eight million a week. How is the money spread? So the soldiers, you know, and then you got, how was that spread? Is, was there a um, arrangement that was, everyone knew how the numbers would be, it's 10% here or 5% or 20% here, or would everything vary and nothing was really uh, a steady number that would always be there? I had my own formula and I discussed it with my father and I, we came to this conclusion. If it, was, if it was a legitimate deal, I didn't have to give anybody anything. 
was my deal. Like I had a couple of automobile dealerships, I had a movie car, I had a lot of stuff legitimately. That was mine. So if you if you started and nobody else helped you start, it's 100% yours. It's mine. And you don't have to share any of it? No, unless I took them at his apartment, Got they it. gave me money or Got whatever. It. No, it was totally mine. Got so my, my legit stuff was mine. The street stuff was different. Like when I when I first got involved with the gas business and I knew what I had, I went and see my boss. I sat down with him, I said, Junior, I'm onto something, it's Persico. I said, I'm gonna show you more money than you ever seen before. And he said, we don't do drugs. I said, it's not drugs, you know I'm not into that. I said, I'm into the gas business. I said, but here's the deal. I don't need you to do anything, but when other families learn of what we have, everybody's gonna wanna get involved. I said, as soon as that happens, we're gonna blow it. I said, you gotta keep this within the family. I said, if we have an argument, you gotta make me win. You gotta make me win. Don't play politics, nothing. You do that for me, and I'll show you more money than you ever saw before. And he said, show me. And I'm starting to bring him every week. All he had to do was sit back. I didn't ask him for anything, right? But every time we had a sit down, I had to win. Now I'm bringing him $2 million a week. That buys a lot of loyalty. And my formula was, if I brought the deal in and I didn't need anything from you, you got 25% of anything. 25% goes back to the family. Got it. <clears throat> got if it. I needed you in some way, like I had to have money from you or whatever, that was different. Then we maybe, you know, maybe you're my full partner. So Everything was different. was a 25% override. 25%, wow. that was my deal. And I was a captain, so there was nobody between me and got him. It. So I gave it to him. Like if I was a soldier, I'd have to give it to my captain. My captain then would give it to him and they'd work it out. Once you're a captain, you only report up, right? There's report nobody else Report directly to the boss. You talked about consigliere, right? Counselor. I can tell you I am where I'm at right now because I've had some amazing advisors in my life. I can't even, we were talking about Dudley earlier. We were talking about certain, you know, Tom and some of these other guys that have affected my life. How do you know who is a consigliere where you can open up with? Like in your world, that's a big part of your life and your business. So how do you identify one? And when do you know this is gonna be the guy that I'm gonna to go to? The consigliere is an official position in our life. There for, is a consigliere. For every made man or for? There's one consigliere in every family. And the consigliere, his official position is that he is the liaison between the men and the boss. In other words, in that life we're told this, everybody is equal. You may be the boss, but you're still equal. You don't have better rights than the soldier. We're all made guys, we're all equal. You just happen to have a different position. You're in control, but we're equal. You can't, you can't violate a soldier's right either. So if a soldier has a problem, maybe with the boss or something, he's supposed to go to the consigliere and the consigliere straightens it out with the boss. That's in theory how it, it is. In practice, it doesn't work that way because the boss appoints the consigliere. And if you have a problem with the boss and you go to the consigliere, you're probably gonna get killed or get in trouble. Got so you never said anything to the consigliere. It was kind of a nonsense position, you know? And usually it was, it was a, a guy that the boss respected that you know, he would run things off of and they'd discuss things together and figure out what they have to do in any situation. You didn't have an individual consigliere, but I obviously, the guy that I trusted the most and talked with was my dad. If I had something that I thought I needed advice with, I talked Perfect. to my dad. it was immediate, yeah. That was it. It's good to have that one person there that you could go to and say, look, you know, especially my dad, because he knew the life so, so well. What made a very good consigliere? So if you were to say, uh, Here's what makes a very good consigliere. What would you say that was? Wisdom. He, he had to know the life. He had to have good discernment, you know, on uh, you know, how to figure things out. He should be a cool-tempered guy. Um, and he should be sincere, and, uh, you know, and not have his own personal agenda. That's important. But uh, that's rare. I'm telling you, it's rare in that life. There's so much politics that goes on there. You really had to be careful. What was the benefit of being a consigliere? It's a high position. You know, it's, a, it's a, I mean, the underboss and the consigliere were kind of equal. Really? Really? Wow, so that, that much of a respect the position. So let, let's transition to human nature. You know, what were, what were some of the things that you learned where you would go and have a sit down or you'd meet with people and you would say, I don't know if I feel comfortable with this guy. I don't know if I trust this guy. I feel comfortable trusting this guy. Was there a methodology that you eventually put together 
or was it still an intuition type of thing when you were reading people? It was more intuitive, um, I would say, because everybody was so different. And obviously, if you had experience with somebody more than once, then you know, all right, I know what I'm, I'm up, uh, I'm in for with this guy. But it was more intuitive, because again, with me, I had so many, you know, with so many different people, and uh, I, I pretty well knew, you know, when you you start to get some experience in that life, you know right away, you know, when somebody's out to get you, and so to speak, you know, they they're they're looking to, you know, not make things turn out for you well. You know, you just deal with it. Because I would assume probably a person who ends up becoming a boss in that world, you have to be very good in human nature. You know, you got to be able to figure it out and see who's, uh, even if you have a sit-down, you're sitting there, you're looking at this guy saying, that guy's not on my side, this guy's on my side, that guy's in the middle, this guy. There was a lot of that probably going on all the time. Yeah, you know, you know the problem though, Patrick, with that life, you know, that life is like, it's like a wheel turning around. And the guy that's on the bottom today can end up being on the top tomorrow. And you always had to be mindful of that. So, for instance, you know, in Gotti's case, you know, he could have had a soldier close to him that was a nobody, really. And then all of a sudden, Gotti's the boss, and now this guy becomes somebody. So a guy that you didn't have much respect for, um, now you better respect him. Got it. So... Because of that, you always tried to treat people the Very right way. Yeah. Very Because you never know, you know, where that guy's going to be the next day or the next week. And then he's got it in for you, and then you got a problem. That is, that is very interesting when you think about that, because you, you, that guy comes up, the influence is going to be with him, right? So uh, let's transition into some interesting characters. So Rudy Giuliani, right? He, he's coming up, right? And he wants to clean house, is, he want, is what he wants to do. Rudy says... A guy who wrote a book, Man of Honor? Man of Honor. Man Banano. of Honor. Who, who's the person? Banano. That okay. So he writes the book, and then he gives the blueprint to them to know what the RICO game was, and he puts that together, and they had the best FBI agent at that time, some guy named Lindley or Lynn, uh, you know, that he knew how to go and create an uh, informants, and he re goes and figures out with the Green Reaper, the Scarpa, I think. So how, is that really truth to that, or is that more, that. okay. I don't it. believe any of that. I mean, Giuliani says that the reason he, he was, in, he had a position in Washington, D.C., in the Department of Justice. And his story was that um, Joe Bonanno wrote this book, and he being an Italian-American, Giuliani, was so insulted by this book because he made the mafia out to be like a family, like it was a very legitimate, great thing. And he was so insulted by it, Giuliani, that he had a clean house because of it. And that's why he came to New York and became the U.S. attorney there, so he could attack the mob and clean house. Um, I don't know if I believe that. I think uh, he was an opportunistic guy, and being a U.S. attorney in Manhattan is an extremely prestigious position. And he picked our guys to go after and build his career at that point in time. And he did a great job of it. I mean, let's face it. He I has mean, that repetition till today, you know. I mean, he, he was very capable at what he did. The racketeering, the RICO statute, had been on, on the books for over 10 years mm -hmm. when Rudy came mm -hmm. in, but nobody ever used it. He learned, or he saw how to use it effectively. And he started using it against us, and it was designed to be used against us, but nobody ever did it. And it's an it's extremely difficult law to, uh, to, to, to navigate around. I mean, I had three RICO indictments. To me, I mean, I think it's an unconstitutional law, but it's a law, nevertheless, it's on the books, so you live with it. But, uh, you know, he just was determined to make his name on us guys, and he did. Did you ever have a one-on-one -on -one run-in with him? Um, I had one, well, in the courtroom, the day I was, uh, he indicted me on a big RICO case. And the day of my arraignment, I had, uh, he was giving me bail, and he came up to me and he said, Francis, if I convict you on this case, I'm gonna give you double what your father got. You're gonna get 100 years. And that's the kind of time he they were giving. Told me straight out. And um, I said, Rudy, I beat you guys three times already. Let's go for round four. I told him, you know, I was kind of <laughs> arrogant back then. But, uh, you know, I was on trial for several months and I was the lead defendant and um, I was acquitted in that case. Some of my code events were convicted. I got 30 years, so he, I would have probably got at least 50 if I lose that case. So to say that I won that case was a blessing is, is an understatement. Wow. I'd still be in prison. Wow. 
What do you think about Rudy today? What do you think, like when you see Rudy today on TV, I mean, you, I, I, I saw news was on. Mm -hmm. So when you watch TV and you see him, how do you, how, how do you look at him when you, you know? How you do know you I'm okay with him. I mean, it's not personal. You know, I actually saw him one time. He, he actually, um, he said some good things about me later on. Uh, because when I was walking away from that life, most of the people in government said, ah, it's a fraud, he's not really walking away, and he's pulling a scam over the government like he did in the gas business. Everybody said that. But Rudy said, you know what? He's a pretty smart guy, and he knows his life is on the run, and I think his walking away may be genuine. He said that wow. early on. What yeah. year what year was it? Was in the 90s? Yeah, it was, yeah it, was in the, it was in the early 90s, I think, when that, yeah, he came in. He said that. Very you know? interesting for him to say that. But listen, he's a very capable guy. Um, no question about it. I will tell you this, I thought he was a great mayor in New York. Yeah. I really did. He did a lot for that city, uh, without a doubt. So, I mean, I can't knock his, um, you know, his abilities. Uh, he, was, he was good at what he did. He says a big part of it was something about his dad, you know, and his dad said, uh, we can't be bullied in New York, and that was his inspiration, which I'm like, wow, what an... What a thing to remember for your dad to instill that you get that much drive to want to go against the five families. That's, that, that's got to be a chip on his shoulder to want to do something you like know, that. I mean, it's a good narrative, but if you're going to make your name in New York, you're going to make it two ways. You're going after Wall Street or you're going after the mob. That's it. And he chose both. <laughs> Let's face it. I mean, he got Boski and he got, uh, uh, what's his name, uh, the other big guy. Um, uh, gosh, I, was, I forget, Milken, he got Milken, and he got us, he got us all, so I mean, you know, but I'll tell you what, uh, I owe a lot to him, and he doesn't even realize this, when I was on trial, Ira Rizzo, my gas business partner, had become an informant, they were creating the case against me in the gas business, and Ira Rizzo was the star witness, well when Giuliani found out that they had this big witness against me, and I was on trial, he wanted that witness to testify against me. The problem was I Rizzo didn't really know anything about that case. But there was a big dispute I found out afterwards uh, between the Eastern District and Giuliani over getting I Rizzo to testify because the Eastern District didn't want to give him up. That was their guy. You know how it is, yeah. the government. Anyhow, Giuliani's got a lot of juice, he wins. We put I Rizzo on the stand, okay? And we crucify him up there, destroyed him on the stand, okay? Jury didn't believe him, I get acquitted. What happens now? Now the government is scared because I just beat their main witness against me in the gas case. They're ready to throw him out of the witness protection program. Wow. That's what gave me the leverage to negotiate the deal that I got because they were afraid I was gonna beat him again because I had won four cases now. I know they called John the Teflon down, but I've won four cases too. And, and the Giuliani case was a big loss for them. And if you look back, that was the only case that ended up in an acquittal. He convicted everybody. We were the only ones where there was an acquittal. So that gave me the leverage to go in and make the deal in the Eastern District and only, I said only, get 10 years. Because that was a bonus back then, only get 10 years. They were giving everybody 50 and 100. You got 10? I got 10. That's amazing compared to some of the other stories you hear about. I'll tell you this, I believe if I didn't testify in the Giuliani case and I beat him, yeah. they wouldn't have made the deal with me. They would have taken me to trial because it was the gas business. They figured they had me. Wow. They were going to put me away forever, but they got scared. How much would you have gone? 30, 35, 50? Is oh, easy. Easy. 50 minimum. Really? Yeah. Patrick, they were giving guys 100, 150 years. Wow. And I'm saying, I'm the youngest out of all of these and guys. They're going to give me 300 years. That's unbelievable. They would have crucified me. When you have time to think and really analyze the way yeah. life goes, and you look back and I said, man, all these negatives turned into a positive for me. They gave me breaks that I didn't realize were, were happening at that time. You know, that's a big part of my faith when I talk to people. I said, you know, the, the misery that you're going through now might be the blessing for you later on. I said, it happened in my life in, in more than one situation. You know, my father, okay, betraying me, that later broke that tie that got me out of that life. Because everybody I know, either dead or in prison for the rest of their life, everybody. So how was I gonna walk away? I had a major bullseye on my back. They weren't gonna let me go. No way. That is an unbelievable story right there. Like by itself, that's an unbelievable story. So Rudy Giuliani, you know what would be fun? It, it, it'd be fun to, 
be at a sit down with you, Rudy, and just hearing the conversations now. You're I would related. love that. Huh? I would love that. I would, we, I would love to see I, it. First thing I tell Rudy, you know, the only, I'm the only guy to beat you. You know that, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'd start it off like that, put him right on the defensive. <laughs> um, so let some characters, you know, a couple characters that I'm curious about if you ever had a running with. Did you ever have any business with Roy Cohen? I did. How who how was his personality? Because you hear Roy Cohen, the influence with Trump, and you know he was working with the five families, and everybody trusted him because he wasn't leaking any information to anybody. You know the story that he had in the court many years ago that you read about all the time. So, who how was Roy Cohen? He was respected. But I'll tell you my my major Roy Cohen incident. I get indicted in uh, uh, the Giuliani case. Roy reaches out to me go to his office, I go see him. He said, I heard about the case. He says, I can get your indictment squashed. Now, Patrick, nobody gets an indictment squashed, not in the federal level, not when you're a target like me. I said, okay. I said, what do you want? He said, I want 250 grand. He says, and I'll make it go away. I said, I'll tell you what. I said, I'm calculating. I got to go to trial, this and that, and I lose. You know, I'm going to go. I said, I'll put a million dollars in escrow. Okay, when the indictment is squashed, take the whole million. Because I knew it wasn't going to happen. He said, "Well, you know, it doesn't work that way." I said, well, "That's how I work it." I said, "I'm giving you four, three times the money, four times the money." I said, "I'm putting it in escrow. Take it, squash the indictment. You got it." That was the end of that. He's trying to beat me. Yeah. You know, because then they come up with another excuse. That's right. Tell you, we never trusted our lawyers. Never tried. Even the lives, even the ones we loved, we hated. Well, you know, Gigani apparently had a great lawyer, but was, Bruce Cutler. You know who I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, Bruce Cutler. I knew Bruce well. Was he? So he also people didn't trust him either. You trust him to a point, right? Because it's money. It's my fees yes. per hour and the whole. You never, you never, ever, ever admitted to your lawyer, no matter how much you trust him, that you were guilty. Was Roy no. trusted? No. Really? No. Seriously? He was a. Uh, let, let, let me tell you something about that life, and I don't mean this to be offensive. Wow. Anybody that wasn't a made guy, it could have been the President of the United States or the Pope. If you're not a made guy, you're a sucker. Everybody was on the same level. And Roy Cohen, if you could use him, you used him. But did we trust him? Hell no. Bruce Cutler, we use him everything else, but you don't trust them 100%. That makes sense. I mean, that's just the way we dealt with them. That makes sense. So was Joey Gallo really the guy that you know that killed you know Joe, Joey Gallo is the guy that did it. Was it validated? It wasn't him, it wasn't him personally. So of course he had the yeah, the, but he he was behind that yeah. That was verified. Everybody knew that 100%. that was the case. Was Nikki Black as feared of a man as they paint him out to be? No. Okay. No. I I got along well with Nikki. I'll tell you one story though. I, I went into his uh, he had a bar. And uh, he was a brutal guy, I got to tell you. And uh, some guy owed him money, and I went in the back with him. He said, Nick, Mike, come over here. And he was breaking the guy's hands and everything like that. The guy owed him money, you know. And uh, I said, Nicky, come on, man. You know, I said, how's the guy going to pay you if you break his hands? Can't even go to work, you know. <laughs> you know, but, uh, but no, he wasn't. You got you to understand something, too. About it. You know, well, John Gotti was feared by everybody. John talked a lot, but... We all were capable of doing what we had to do, you know? We, we were only in fear if we did something wrong and we knew we had to be afraid. But because you throw your chest out, you're no more capable than I am. In other words, if I, if I got an order to kill you, I'm gonna kill you. I don't care who you are, I have to. Otherwise, my life is at stake. So we didn't fear people in that way, but you know, there's people you don't want to cross. Like Junior, my, my boss, he was a treacherous guy. I don't want to cross him because I don't know what's going to happen. Was he that bad? I mean, you, Junior, like the Junior stuff was you read about him is like... They call him the snake. Yeah. I mean, he, he, was a, he was a treacherous guy. I mean, I liked him. Don't get me wrong. I got along with him. But I knew, I knew not to mess with him. So we all had that kind of a fear. You know what I mean? Don't don't mess because you may walk in a room and not walk out. What made Capone special? That you know in the in the community was it anything significant that because they put you and Capone in the same league for the most money made, right? So well, listen, what they always said, and I believe it to be that the gas business was the most money that we had seen since the days of prohibition. 
Now, we're not adjusting for inflation. inflation sure. <laughs> but so, I mean, he was an earner. He had, he, he caught it lucky, like I did, I guess. You know, I found the gas tax. At that time, there was prohibition, and he, he found the right deal, and he was able to capitalize on it, so. When it comes down to sports, do you think, you know, the whole P-Pro story and all these things you hear about, back in the days, okay, you think a lot of it still happens today? As far as? As far as, uh, hey, make sure you don't win by 11. You know, make sure you, you know, don't pitch the game like this. You do this. I know it happens a lot in a high school and a college level. Do you think it still happens at the highest level? In the pros, I don't believe so okay. because the salaries now that these guys make, you know, they can afford to lose. They'll pay their bets. They'll pay their debts, you know. Back in my day, it was a different story. You know, I had bookmakers working for me, and we had a lot of athletes gambling with us. And I remember bookmakers calling me up, hey, Mike, so-and-so is into me for 25 grand. Should I cut him off? I said, why would you cut him off? All you're doing is writing an entry on a piece of paper. I said, get leverage. Let him get into you for 250 grand, and then bring him to me. The higher the loss, the more leverage you got over the guy, mm -hmm. you know? Because they didn't have that kind of money back then. Now, 250 grand, they paid off. What's the big deal? Nothing. You know? No. I mean, look, Michael Jordan is a legendary degenerate gambler, and I'm not calling him personally. I'm just calling his gambling Sure, habit. sure, yeah. The guy can lose a million dollars a week and wouldn't phase him. Yeah. You know, so I mean, yeah, there's, you can't. And there's some controversy behind him with the whole, what happened to his dad. Yeah. You remember that whole thing about yeah. was it, was it not, and, and Stern told him to step away. But who, I mean, I don't know the story behind it. But uh, I, I definitely believe, because I was working with uh, the NBA at that point in time, and they told him to get away. And that's you, when he went, you definitely believe that. I, 100% I believe that. And he went and played baseball for a year just to get, let things die down. And then he came back, you know, yeah. I mean, that's, that was the inside talk at that time. I read both sides and I'm like, you know, it's kind of convincing. I just don't know for me to say that, but uh, you hear some high credible sources saying that, you know, that this took, took place. Last few things here before we wrap up. So you got a new project coming up. I literally got an email a week ago. It says, hey, did you know Michael got casted for a movie with Tom Hanks and, you know, with uh, Katarina Radivojevic from, uh, you know, Croatia or, you know, the movie's going to be in Croatia. It's a $50 million budget. How <laughs> did this all of a sudden happen? You know, I had, a movie. A, I had a role in a movie recently called Let There Be Light with uh, Kevin Sorbo. And long story short, how that happened, the writer is a good friend of mine. He wrote me into the, and then he said, Mike, I want you to play the, the part. And I had no intention of doing it, but I ended up doing it. I was an ex-mob guy who became a, a pastor. Big stretch, <laughs> big stretch for me, right? So I was basically playing myself. But, um, you know, I'm involved with a fellow by the name of Tom Creole. And Tom is... Um, he goes after black money. Black money meaning um, uh, money that's used to uh, finance terrorist groups and money that's used to go after Christian um, you know, martyrs, I mean, to martyr Christians. And he and I are kind of working together and he's, he created a, film, a, a, a game rather called, um, oh gosh, I forget, Eva something, the game, right? And they're creating a movie out of the game. And I think they spoke to Tom Hanks and he wants to be in it. Let me tell you about this movie. It's, it's, a, it's an early project, so who knows if it'll ever come to pass. But yes, they want me to play the role. And I said, look, because of the cause, I'll be involved with it. I'm not an actor. I don't intend to be an actor. But uh, I guess if the right thing comes up and it, it works for you, you do it. So I do know that you had some experience with movies in the past that you, you know, had somebody that worked with you that, you know, you funded some movies, a quarter million dollars that led to another half a million dollars. So uh, there's some stories about what are you working on nowadays? What, what are some projects you're working on nowadays? A couple of things are real exciting. I, my main project right now is I'm doing a stage show in Las Vegas. And it's the history of the mob in Las Vegas set to music and dance. It's a musical. Wow. And we're telling the whole history of the mob from uh, the 1950s okay when they got involved and actually created Vegas right through the 80s when they kind of were pushed out and I'm going to narrate it actually on stage and a little bit of my story is going to be interspersed in that the way we've designed it but it's a really cool project I'm very excited about it. it's going to appear at the plaza downtown uh, we have a marketing um, arrangement with the mob museum that's a that's a big museum downtown in uh, Vegas I have a relationship with them there and it's going to premiere in May of, uh, of next year so I have that, um, 
And I've got two television projects. One is a scripted series called American Royalty. And that is the history of the mob in New York from the 50s right through the mid-70s. And we're going to tell the story of the five families. And uh, I'm, I'm really excited about the project because I'm with a great company. And they put together a great showrunner and writer who's got uh, you know tremendous credits. And I think that's going to go next year. And I'm doing a, uh, a true crime unscripted show that's called A Mafia Democracy. And basically, um, the theme of the show is that we're going to highlight cases where the government was complicit in framing somebody. Um, and we're going to be holding the government accountable in cases like that. The first case that we're going to highlight in the first season is my father's case. Wow. We're going to tell that whole story. Unbelievable. Uh, in six episodes. Does he know about it? Uh, he does. And um, I said to him, Dad, for 50 years you've been complaining that you've been framed. I believe you, a lot of people believe you, but you never want to talk about it on camera. I said, I'm going to do this show. I said, but you have to get on camera and all you have to say is I was framed. I'm going to ask you some questions and you got to cooperate. You know what he says to me? He says, let me ask my lawyer. <laughs> I said, Dad, you don't have a lawyer. I gave you a lawyer. I said, and your lawyer's going to say yes. So you got to commit to me that you're going to do it. So he committed. He said, yes. That's I'll do cool. It. He's never been on camera. My dad has never said a word to the press, has never been wow. interviewed. So this will be the first time. The oldest made guy in America, okay, is finally going to be on camera and say some things. And I said, you don't have to admit who you are, what you did, or what you were involved in. Well, I'm going to get him to do that anyway. But um, <laughs> yeah, he's agreed. And I, I think it's important. You know, again, I want people to understand, I'm not anti-government. I'm not anti-law enforcement. I have many friends in law enforcement. I have brothers in Christ in enforcement. And I tell people, I have five daughters. When they walk down the street, I expect law enforcement to sure. protect them. Yep. I'm a friend to law enforcement. But what I don't like is when uh, they go rogue and they frame people and they put people away mm. and they destroy lives. They have enough weapons and tools to play by the rules and go, and go and get people the right way. And most good people in law enforcement feel the same way. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going against them. But uh, to me, it's an exciting series. It's kind of like, you know, John Walsh in America's Most Wanted. He had a personal stake in this. And uh, I'm going to host that series. It looks like uh, they want me to do that. And hopefully that'll be a success and it'll have the right impact. And I, I'll be honest with you, Patrick, I don't think there's ever been a time in my lifetime where a show like this would be more relevant. Than today. the feeling with government is not great today. No, it's not. No, it's not. And you kind of talked about it in the end of your book. You know, if there's anything I would say, when you buy the book, uh, I'll make you an offer you can't refuse. The last chapter really gets into your beliefs about the government and politics and all that, which I think it's very fascinating. Uh, maybe we can talk about that on another time. But guys, again, if you haven't read the book, go buy the book. We'll put a link on the bottom. Michael, thank you so much for opening your thank home you, to Patrick. us. Thank you, Patrick. Appreciate your time. It. Thank you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Valuetainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bidavid. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.